702. The Naked Scientist. This is your time with the Naked Scientist. Good afternoon, Hello. Chris. <laughs> <laughs> it's that time of the week again. Yeah, good uh, yeah no, really, really good. It, good yeah, spirits. yeah, it's just amazing how fast the weeks are flying by, though. It doesn't seem like a week we were last having this conversation. Here we are again. But uh, yes, you're right. I did send out a tweet. So if anyone wants to tweet in any questions to me or to as a or to at Radio yeah. 702, we would love that. Absolutely, absolutely. Uh, I see that you have your lockdown restrictions uh, being lifted once more. Well, I be it. A, uh, <laughs> They're talking yeah. about this yeah. sort of one metre <laughs> plus thing where you, you'll be able to get a bit closer to people, but only if you wear a face mask. And the problem is that um, mm-hmm. this is not going to go down too well in pubs and restaurants, is it? Because most people won't be able to no. drink. <laughs> Because they'll have this face mask in the way, or they have to sort of slurp up the beer through the face mask, or remove the face mask. And if they're standing there having a drink with someone, well, they won't won't be able to to say they're socially distanced. Then, so I'm not really sure how this is going to work. It's interesting times. Yes, absolutely. Chris, uh, one person wants to know how do our eyes manage to move together? So. I guess what they're saying is that imperfect uh, uh, synchrony, that they're perfectly mm. synchronized. Yeah, and it's a, it's a, a masterpiece of neurological wiring. Now, the way this works, wow. it's more complicated than just your eyes moving together because here's a simple experiment everyone can do at home to prove how good this is. What I want you to do is to hold your finger out in front of your face and stare at the tip of your finger mm-hmm. and now shake your head vigorously mm-hmm. from side to side or up and down you will be able to maintain <laughs> yeah. steady gaze on your finger despite your best efforts to distract the process. And what is happening is this incredible feat of neurological wiring where in your ears are your vestibular canals. These are called the semicircular canals and they are full of fluid and projecting into them are these tiny hairs which are connected to nerve cells. When the fluid moves, the hairs move. When the hairs move, the nerve cells send impulses to the brain telling the brain how much that fluid is moving. In the brainstem, those connections are all wired together in just the right way that they are sent to each of the nerve centres that control the muscles that move the eyeballs so that the two eyes move together by just the right amount and in the opposite direction to any head movement. And this means that you can maintain steady gaze on things whenever you're moving. And this is absolutely critical to you being able to actually do what you do because otherwise you would have to stop dead still, look at something, focus on it, absorb the information, then move again. Now, some animals do have to do that. And if you've watched a bird like a pigeon, if you've ever watched a pigeon try and walk, what does it do when it's walking? Bobs its head, right? Why does it do that? The reason it, do, it the reason it does this is because it doesn't have the mechanism I'm describing. It's got eyes on the side of its head and the world would go streaming past the pigeon and it would get very confused by what it was seeing. So what the pigeon does is it shoves its head forward, looks at something and then mm. mo- keeps its head locked still and moves its body under its head. And that's why it does that funny head bobbing movement so it can maintain conjugate gaze luckily your brain is wired up in such a way that you don't have to do that because we'd all look pretty weird if we did wouldn't we but this is because there is this amazing system wiring head movements to eye movements and at the same time there are nerve pathways connecting all of the what what are called ocular motor nuclei in the brainstem which is where the nerve Mm -hmm. cells are that control the muscles around the eye and they're all cross-wired so that when you move an eye in one direction the other eye follows suit but by the right amount 
Because if you think about it, if I yes. move my right eye to look towards my right, it's not the same movement that my left eye needs to make. It's actually the opposite movement. Mm-hmm. My left eye has to move towards the right as well, but that's a different set of muscles than the other eye. Mm. So it's all very cleverly wired together so that you get a crystal clear view of the world all the time. Absolutely amazing. Absolutely, especially when you describe it there. Um, let's go to Carol next in Benoni. Hello, Carol. Hi, good afternoon. Um, uh, I just want to know, um, this has been a very, very cold winter for us here on the half south. We haven't had black frost for a long time. Yeah. Now, my, my reasoning is that since we've had lockdown, mines have closed down, um, all these factories with smoke and everything have stopped, mm-hmm. and they've been able to see the Himalayas. Has that anything to do with clear, clear sky and air and everything to do with how cold our winter is? Well, it's possible. Right. Um, th- there is speculation mm-hmm. that uh, we're going to see some weather effects because you certainly do change the local climate when you produce yeah. pollution. For example, there was a paper published about 10 years ago now in the journal Science where they showed that it does rain more downwind of airports. And someone actually looked at all the flight data and they showed that when aircraft take off from an airfield, because of low pressures around the wingtips, for example, they create voids in clouds in the low pressure areas, which corresponds to rainfall having come out of the cloud. So that's one example of how things that would make pollution can change the weather. Also, when you've got things like industries producing lots of particulates, these particulates can go up in the air and they act as nucleation points. And what that means is that water molecules like to have a surface to form on and water molecules like to get together where there are other water molecules. So if you have a tiny particle in the air and you add to that particle some water, it will then get more water and more water and more water and you'll make a big droplet. And that will then eventually get heavier than the updrafts of wind which are holding the clouds aloft and it will fall as rain. So you can make it rain by putting pollution into the air So it's possible that in some areas you're going to get less rainfall at the moment compared with when you're experiencing more pollution from upwind because that that pollution, Mm -hmm. traffic, other industry is currently reduced. So on the scale of the whole planet, probably we're going to see some changes because the amount of emissions has plummeted because countries are locked down. But at a local level, we may also see some effects because of as I've just said, changes to cloud seeding. And if you're not seeding as many clouds, you might get brighter days. But people are looking at this because we've never had the opportunity to do this kind of experiment. Mm. And so scientists are gathering data from all over the world, even from space. And we can see data in terms of how much heat is radiating from the Earth's surface, how much pollution there is over the Earth's surface from all these wonderful pictures from space. And so scientists are gathering all this information and I guarantee they're going to be poring over this for quite a while now to work out a lot of things they couldn't have learned previously without the benefit of coronavirus. So you could say this is one example of a cloud having a silver lining and this is a coronavirus cloud with a silver (laughs) lining. It's teaching us about climate, climate change and weather effects caused by pollution and industry. Oh, lovely play of words then, concepts, Chris. Carol, thank you so much for your question. 
Thank you. Next, we've got uh, Karabo in Edenvale. Hi, Karabo. Okay, my name is Karabo and I live in Edenvale. I'm in Tete. So I have two questions right now. Mm-hmm. My first question is, why is Earth only the planet that can support life? And okay. my second question is, how far is it to go to Mars and to come back? Okay, and probably how long? I wonder how long it would take, <laughs> Karabo. Okay. Two lovely questions and thank you for calling in. Now, the first one is, why is Earth so special? Earth is so special because it's in the so-called Goldilocks zone around the sun. Why do we call it the Goldilocks zone? Remember, Goldilocks is the story of uh, the lady, the young girl, who went into a house in the woods Mm. and she found that three bears lived there and there were three bowls of porridge on the table. There was a small one, a bigger one and a really big one. And one of them was just right and she ate it all. And she sat in a chair that was just right and then she went and had a sleep (laughs) in a bed that was just right. You can see where I'm going with this. Relative to our distance from the sun it means that we are in the so-called habitable zone around the sun. This really matters being at that distance because it means our planet is at just the right temperature for liquid water to exist. And life processes as we know them need liquid water. So if you've got a planet the right distance away that the amount of thermal energy reaching the planet keeps water as a liquid, that's your sweet spot. Other planets are not so lucky Mars possibly was a wetter world in the past, but is now dried out on a prune of a planet, probably because it lost its magnetic field early in its history. So as a result, it doesn't have liquid water now. It's very cold. It doesn't have much of an atmosphere. It's got carbon dioxide as an atmosphere, but it's very thin. It doesn't trap a lot of heat. So Mars is a frozen wasteland. Venus, on the other hand, almost the same size as the Earth, bit closer to the sun but had a runaway greenhouse effect sometime back in its history and the surface temperature of venus is hundreds of degrees centigrade if you made uh, or had a, something made of lead on venus it would instantly melt it's that hot on venus and the pressure is crushing because there's all this wow. water and carbon dioxide in the atmosphere which has been boiled off from the seas and it's also full of sulfuric acid and that's not very nice either so venus not very conducive to life far too hot horrible conditions mars not great for life uh, horrible conditions mm. earth in the sweet spot liquid water nice atmosphere magnetic field to keep the solar radiation under control and an ozone layer to keep the uv out of control perfect for us to be there your journey to mars we we've got quite good data on this because uh, we've sent a lot of probes to mars to go and look for past life there and the shortest journey that you can make it in is when Mars and Earth are in roughly the same positions of their orbits. Because remember, the planets are all going around the sun, but they're all taking slightly different amount of times to do it. So at certain points in their orbit, yeah. they're closest. And those are the points when it makes sense to make the journey between them. And the quickest you can do it is about nine months. And the radiation exposure you would encounter during your nine-month journey would be more than an astronaut is allowed to get in their entire working lifetime. If you were to go there and back, you'd have a bigger dose in that one journey than you're allowed to get in your entire working lifetime for radiation safety. So at the moment, that's a bit of an untried entity. We're not sure. We'd have to build some kind of radiation shield to protect us if we were to do it, but you're looking at nine months in space, and that's assuming you can mitigate the other benefits, sorry, the other risks of being on a long-term space journey for nine months, which is Mm -hmm. muscles wasting, your heart uh, and blood vessels not coping terribly well with that, possibly your brain changing as well. So space is a horrible place. Who wants to go there? (laughs) You always say that. I knew that was coming. (laughs) Karabo, thank you so much for your questions. You're welcome. Thank you. That's Karabo in Edenvale. Andile is next in Johannesburg. Hello, Andile. 
I just press I was speaking to Andy um phoning from the oncology ward at um Charlotte McMichael Hospital. Now mm-hmm. my question is about um chemotherapy and um how it was discovered first off. And then the follow up to that is uh why was my nurse himself mortified when I asked her if I could take it orally? Who was horrified? Who was mortified, Andile? The nursing staff, yeah. Oh, they were mortified when you asked if you could take it orally. Okay. All right. Well, first of all, thanks for the lovely question. And Let's just talk about what actually is chemotherapy. Chemotherapy means giving chemicals or drugs to make something better. And if we're talking about the oncology ward, we're talking about people who have cancer. And cancers are cells that have problems with their genetic information so that they've lost the ability to be controlled and obey the normal rules that cells should follow in the body and they grow at the wrong rate, they grow where they shouldn't and they refuse to die when you tell them to. The body's cells are normally very rigorously controlled in terms of how long they live for, where they go, how they grow, and who they talk to. And cancers disobey all these rules. Though the treatments that we give cancers, historically, chemotherapy meant giving drugs that would fairly non-specifically target any cells that were growing really fast because most cancer cells grow fast they grow out of control and they grow quickly so if you give drugs that cells that are growing really quickly are sensitive to you will destroy those cells preferentially compared to the slower growing mm-hmm. cells in the body but the problem is there are some cells that quite naturally because of the job they have to do have to grow very fast and so that includes cells that uh, say line your mouth and your gut and so if you take drugs that damage those cells they will also give you a sore tummy your skin same story your hair same mm. story which is why you see these side effects in people who have to take chemotherapy luckily because we have clever scientists we've moved things on a bit now and we've got to a stage where we can give drugs which don't just non-discriminately target cancers they can go in like magic bullets we've worked out some of the molecular machinery that makes cancer cells tick and tick at different rates to healthy tissue and we can exploit those differences with drugs that just go in and hit those differences and so we're now into an era where we have they're often very expensive because they're very new treatments but we have treatments mm. that can go in and hit specific pathways to target certain elements of a disease that's exclusive to the cancer and if you're doing that it means that you can okay. massively reduce the side effects that uh, in terms of why mm. these drugs can't always be given orally some chemotherapy drugs can you can swallow some of these pills but some of the drugs are proteins and proteins just like sunday lunch the the joint of meat you might eat or an egg that's protein mm-hmm. if you eat them then your body will digest them just the way it digests your dinner and therefore they're not going to work yeah. so you have to inject some drugs under the skin or into a blood vessel to make sure that they bypass digestion and can then get to where they need mm-hmm. to go but some drugs can be absorbed that way quite safely in a pill so it's not a given that you have to always inject a chemotherapy agent but many you do Okay. Thank you, Andile. Thanks for that question. And next, we also go to Boxburg with George. Hello, George. Hi. Good afternoon. Yes. Can I speak to the first? Absolutely, George. What's your question this afternoon? Yes. During these latest uh, power outages, I was wondering, if you shine a torch towards the mirror, yeah. will it give you double light back or will it give you more light, let's say, that in the room as if there, if there wasn't a mirror? If you find mm. the, the, the torch up towards the ceiling, if you shine it to the mirror, would you get more light? 
Hello, George. You're trying to Did invent you a you're, you're trying to invent a perpetual motion machine there, my friend, which um, <laughs> physicists will be reeling and they'll be saying this is impossible because if you think about it, light is energy, and if you have energy and you were to shine that energy at a mirror and you got back more light than you put in, you'd be getting back more energy than you put in, and so if you had two mirrors and you shone a light between the two, you'd end up with the amount of energy going up and up and up and up and up and you'd have an infinite amount of energy and uh, that would be a physical impossibility. Uh So it doesn't work like that. The way it does work is when you shine a light, that light is making photons, a stream of particles that we call photons. They will hit the mirror. They interact with the atoms in the shiny layer at the back of the mirror and they make the atoms' electrons shake. And when the electrons shake... Moving electrons produce photons. In other words, they, the light goes in and the mirror then sends the light back out again. So the light is basically regenerated by the mirror. But what comes out is about the same as what goes in. There will be some losses, a little bit, but a very good mirror can be made that's more than 99.99999% reflective. So you get back almost all of what you put in, and lasers use this phenomenon. But you certainly won't get more light than you put in from your mirror, I'm afraid. So it's a good idea, but you would have invented a perpetual motion machine, and that would have violated all of the rules of physics. And so that would mean that you had to be, you had to be taken to prison and locked up for that. Thanks very much. George, great question. Thank you very much. Let's listen to this voice note. Someone sent us a voice note voice note with a question. Chris? Good afternoon. My name is Bapian Gombani. And I have a question for the scientists. So a few months back I researched about climate change and all and all that stuff. But I found out that about a uh, hundred million years ago the earth was much warmer. So my question is, is it climate change or just the earth's cycle? Thank you so much for that question, Bapue. Uh, your views on this, Chris? Hi, Bapue. Great to have your input and to have done the research, and you're spot on that the Earth has gone through periods of being much warmer than it is today and much mm-hmm. colder than it is today. In fact, if we were to go back about 30 or 40 million years to a period called the Oligocene-Eocene boundary, the Earth then was so hot there were no polar ice caps. If you'd gone to where the North Pole is, you wouldn't have found Father Christmas and you wouldn't have found any ice either. All melted. (laughs) Antarctica, completely melted. And then we've gone back into a cold spell again. Why does this happen? Well, the Earth has natural cycles. Those natural cycles are caused by a range of things. One of them is that as the Earth goes round on its orbit, it doesn't orbit smoothly. It wobbles a bit. And that wobbling means that you slightly change over a period of many years how much energy comes in and therefore is absorbed by the planet and this causes slow rises and falls in temperature and over geological time these are called Milankovitch cycles and they, they vary in terms of tens of thousands of years so the earth goes through periods of warming and cooling. Superimposed on this is also the effect of geology. As you make mountains for example you exposed to the atmosphere various chemicals which previously were not exposed to the atmosphere because you've made lots of mountains with a big surface area. These can react with the atmosphere, for instance, with the carbon dioxide in the atmosphere. And if they pull carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere to make carbonate rocks, which is what happened when the Himalayas began to form about 60 million years ago because India came up from where Antarctica is and hit Asia and formed the Himalayas, When you do that, you draw CO2 out of the atmosphere and you make the planet get colder. 
and then you go into an ice age. So you get these natural cycles of the earth warming and cooling. What sets apart the present day from that is that the present day we should be, based on our understanding of these cycles over many millions of years, is we should be now going into a cooling phase. And in fact, the earth isn't cooling, it's warming. And what has changed Mm. is the amount of CO2 in the atmosphere. So we think that what's happened is we've put enough carbon dioxide through our activities into the atmosphere that we have basically stopped the Earth getting colder and reversed the process, and now we're making the Earth warmer. So when we should be going towards an ice age, Mm. we're not. And this is what's caused everyone concern. Yes. Oh, Chris, we still have so many other questions, but we can't get to all of them. But that's why this is a standing feature, because <laughs> all the world science questions, <laughs> uh, just we simply don't have enough time for all of them in one session. So Great crop of questions this week, though. Weren't they fantastic? They were absolutely so varied. Uh, we've stepped out of the COVID phase. And so the curiosity about the natural world has returned. Um, thank you so much. No, thank you very much. Yeah, good, good to have a break from Covidose slash Covalode this week, isn't yeah. it? <laughs> oh, there you go again. Thank you, Chris. All right, see you soon. Bye, everybody. And you can follow him on Twitter as well. It's at Naked Scientists, plural, um, just to keep up with some of the things he's up to. The Money Show. Weekday. Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your Cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details.